0: pick up with where we left off last week in the uh, colossians chapter 1 we'll start in verse 24 to 29 now i rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh i'm filling up what is lacking in christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which i became a minister according to the stewardship from god that was given to me for you to make the word of god fully known Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Father God, just now as your children, as the children of light who have been brought out of darkness through the blood of Jesus Christ, may we be hearers of your word. May you instruct us and admonish us and teach us and exhort us through the preaching of your word this morning through Pastor Wayne. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
1: Back in the 80s and 90s, I enjoyed visiting one of my favorite pastors who became somewhat of a mentor to me in Seattle, Washington. A beautiful part of the country with Puget Sound, which is named after Peter Puget. I mentioned that because he was a Huguenot. Huguenot is a French Protestant during the Reformation. We had a, spent a prayer conference uh, on Mount Rainier. Uh, Spent about a week there doing that, just nothing but praying. And there's a a church there in the Palisades that has an American-born Japanese man named John Kawasaki. And uh, John gave his testimony that he first heard of Christ when he was five years old. He was in preschool class, and there was a little girl, a five-year-old little girl, still has baby teeth, asked him if he knew Jesus. And John said, No, I don't know who you're talking about. She then explained who Jesus is, why he came to earth, what he accomplished here on earth through his death, how his Dying brought about our redemption, and her presentation of the gospel was so clear that as an adult, John said, I can still see her face, I still hear her words, and I remember how I knew at that moment I needed to know, who is this Jesus? Now, I share that with you because Christianity is not a sacerdotal system, uh, that's the reason we don't embrace sacerdotalism. Sacerdotal is, uh, uh comes from the Latin word for priest. It, it means to make sacred. Within Catholicism and Anglicanism, it is taught that you approach the Lord through priests who administer God's grace to you in the sacraments. Because after all, that's how it was done in the Old Testament. Remember Moses' brother Aaron and his sons, and their descendants served at the Temple. They were from the tribe of Levi and that's where the Levitical priesthood comes from. And they would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. But in the New Testament, particularly in Romans 10, it makes it very clear that that system, having fulfilled its purpose, having prepared the way for Christ, that system is now obsolete. And the reason is, is because we don't need it. Christ has come and as our High Priest, He has made sacrifice for us. It is finished. He intercedes now on our behalf. That's Hebrews 7. That's the reason the veil of the temple ripped from top to bottom. It ended the need for priests to make sacrifices on behalf of the people. Christ's sacrifice at Calvary is sufficient. Now the New Testament speaks of Christians as being now living stones. There's not a physical temple made of rock. Christ is the rock. He is the cornerstone. We are living stones built up into a spiritual house, Peter said. That's why every Christian is a part of the royal priesthood. We offer spiritual sacrifices as we proclaim praises to him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2. And in what sense are we a royal priesthood? Well, number one, we have been called by the Lord. Number two, we have direct access to the Lord. And number three, we serve Him by offering our lives as living sacrifices. That's Romans 12. Now, our text today is often applied to vocational pastors. But the text actually speaks to every Christian. It's not limited to vocational pastors. This is how the Lord characterizes our ministry, mine and Yours. And it begins with the reality of conflict. Look at verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, to, to understand this, we have to understand the words, right? The word afflictions, the lipsiōn. Is not used ever, ever used in regards to Christ's suffering on the cross. And it's never used in regards to our atonement. So that can't be what it means. This word always has to do with the pressures we experience. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, nobody's going to rejoice in suffering the just wrath their sin deserves. That's called hell. So, what does Paul mean? I rejoice. Well, it does not mean that he enjoys suffering. He's not sadistic. But he's writing this letter from prison. You remember that from the book of Acts, right? Acts 21. The Jews got upset with him because as he is preaching the gospel, they are offended. This Jesus, you crucified. And so they accuse him, falsely accuse him, of taking a Gentile into the temple. Now, the temple had what was called the court of the Gentiles, but that's as far as they could go. They could not go beyond that barrier that separated the Gentiles from the temple. And they said, Paul, you did that. You did that. And they were going to kill him. And that's the reason the Roman soldiers had to arrest him. They had to take him into custody to protect him, to keep him from being stoned. And as a result, there were a number of unpleasant circumstances that went with his imprisonment. And so he says, I rejoice in my sufferings in prison. Why? Why? He tells you, it's for your sake. That's why I rejoice, it was for your sake. You benefit from this. Now, who's he talking about? He's talking about the church. In my flesh, referring to his physical pain, my suffering is for a noble purpose. It's through the hardships that Paul endured. He tells the the church there at Corinth. He he writes them in his letter. He says, the churches of Asia Minor were established because of what I suffered. And you see that as you read through the book of Acts. You see that the, the, the gospel goes to Galatia in Acts 13. It goes to Macedonia in Acts 16. It goes to Ephesus in Acts 19. And now it is in Rome, Acts 28. And he says, I rejoice not because I enjoy suffering. I rejoice in how my suffering has been for your benefit. I received an email from one of our deacons a couple of weeks ago as he was reading ahead, and he didn't want to wait for today's message. He wanted to know, what does this mean? I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? What does that mean? I mean, this verse is one of the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture. I mean, there have been books written about the hundreds of ways this verse has been distorted and misapplied. So what does it mean? Well, you already know what the word afflictions means. It's never used in in regards to Christ suffering God's wrath at Calvary. We know it has absolutely nothing to do with what Christ suffered for our atonement. So Paul is not saying that he's making up for what was lacking in Christ's suffering to satisfy the just wrath of God on our behalf for our sin. That's not what he's talking about. Then what does he mean? Well, to understand the verse, you have to understand the words. Has he used these words any place else in Scripture? Yes. As a matter of fact, the Greek words for filling up and for lacking, those are the key words there, he uses to, uh, to, to, in his letter to the Philippians, which he also writes from prison. He says, Epaphroditus risked his life to, here's the word here, rao." That's the word for filling up. What was lacking, mata, in service to me. Philippians 2.30. Why does he use those words? What do they mean? Look in your Bible there in Colossians 1, go back to verse 23, the gospel is proclaimed to all creation when you are faithful to it, right? And in a fallen world where the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, we can rejoice in this fact. We rejoice in this. We have the privilege of being filled up in Christ with affliction pressures, hardships that come from difficult circumstances. In other words, he's talking about the conflict for the sake of the church, his body, that we must endure. Paul prays in Philippians 3 that he might know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Why? In Acts 9, Paul, on the road to Damascus, gathering up more Christians, he's intercepted by Christ, and Christ asks him, Why are you persecuting me? And I'm sure Paul is thinking, I'm not persecuting you. It's these Christians I'm rounding up and stoning. And Christ says, what you do to the church, do you not understand? You do that to me. They are my body on earth. They're my people. They're in me. You persecute them, you persecute me. And he says, Saul, Saul, I am going to show you how much you must suffer for my name's sake. And so, the second reason that Paul says, I rejoice, I rejoice in this, it's a privilege to share the suffering that comes from my identity with Christ. He has arisen, He has ascended, He has gone to be with the Father. What He now suffers is not in His incarnate flesh, what He now suffers is in His body, the church. So when we suffer for the cause of the gospel, we're filling up affliction intended for Christ. We're taking the blows that the one who took the ultimate blow for us would take. That's why Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 6, verse 17, he said, I'm always bearing in my body the marks of Christ. Always. These are the marks of Christ when they whip me. They beat me because of who I am in him. When was the last time you actually suffered for being a Christian? I'm not talking about being beaten. I'm not talking about being burned uh, on a a pole. I'm not talking about the kind of suffering they did in, in the first century. But when was the last time you were truly berated for who you were in Christ? You were verbally attacked because of something maybe you would not do because of who you were in Christ. You know, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.10, all of us, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, all will be persecuted. Now, don't misunderstand me. We are not to suffer. We are not to suffer because we are hateful. You know, some people, that's the way they deliver the gospel. They want to take the law and they want to beat sinners over the head with it. And so for that reason, people don't like them. I don't like them either. We're we're not to suffer because we're obstinate and difficult and self-righteous and arrogant. He's saying you can be the most considerate person on earth. This is Romans 12, by the way. You can be the most loving person on earth. You can be the kindest person on earth. But because of what you believe, because of who you are in Christ, you can be persecuted. Now, it might be mild persecution compared to the first century, but you can be excluded. You can be left out. You can be shunned, frankly, because maybe you don't fit in. People can talk about you behind your back, it it happens. It happens to me. People will engage in false accusations against you. They'll distort what it is that you believe. That's happened to me. And while this is not as severe a persecution as the early Christians, it's a form of persecution. And my grandchildren are now starting to experience this. Bullied for what they won't do? Teased? Rejected? Made fun of? It's an unavoidable reality for anyone in Christ who won't or who can't go the direction the world is going. You don't fit in. You just don't. The gospel is only good news for those who receive it. Those who are rejecting it will hate those who are living it and who are sharing it with them. So let me ask you, when was the last time you suffered for who you are in Christ? That's what Paul's rejoicing in. I rejoice in my sufferings for Christ. I'm doing it for you, for the church, for your benefit. It has a divine purpose. And in verse 25, he said, look, this message did not originate with me. It didn't. Christ called me according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word fully known. Now, why does he use the word stewardship? Well, the first part of that word, okas, is house. The second part of that word is nomian. It comes from the word nomas, Law. When you put the two together, you get a word that means the one who rules the house, house manager, overseer. This is the guy you entrust your checkbook to, you entrust your keys to, you entrust the operation of your home. He doesn't own anything, but he's responsible for everything. And in those days, the primary job of a steward who worked within the home was to do what? Was to assist in the feeding of the children. You understand now why Christ said to Peter, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. If you love me, you will feed my sheep. That hadn't changed. If you love me, you will teach the children in the classroom. If you love me, you will teach the adults who are young in the faith in your small groups. Hebrews 3.17, every one of you will have to give an account one day for your stewardship. Do you know that? Oh, the blood of Christ covers your sin. <laughs> but every one of us will have to stand before the beam of the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how we have been stewards of the gospel that he has given us to share. Isaiah 66 six two says the Lord looks for people who tremble at his word, they tremble. That means that they have a healthy, holy sense of responsibility for being faithful to the truth. Dr. George Sweeney said that it was common in the New England churches to put brass plates on pulpits. And so he said, whatever pulpit you went into throughout the churches of New England back in the day, You would see right there in front of you, you know, uh, various messages. Preach the word. Or some would say, sir, we would see Jesus. He said the brass plate in the pulpit where he preached said, man, what are you doing to these people? Man, what are you doing to these people? Not a bad message for a lot of pulpits today for a lot of classrooms, for a lot of small groups. What are you doing to these people? Have you no fear of God? Do you not know you will have to give an answer for the stewardship that you've been given within your family and within his family, the church? You will have to give an account for that, not just me as a vocational pastor, you as a Christian who are in Christ. Paul says our responsibility is to make the word of God fully known. What is the word of God? Well, I sent out the email this week, and I asked, could you find six things about the gospel in verses 26 and 27? Here they are. Number one, it's a mystery, first of all, that's been hidden for ages and generations. Number two, that has now been revealed. Number three, to whom has it been revealed? To his saints. Number four, to whom the Lord chose to make known How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And number five, this is Christ in you. Number six, the hope of glory. The word of God was a mystery for ages and for generations. That is a term used to um, uh, explain how even in the Old Testament, where the Lord's compassion could be seen towards Gentiles, they still didn't get it. They didn't, they didn't get how Jew and Gentile are both redeemed in one savior the Lord promised back in Genesis three. They thought it was just them because the Lord was giving his word through them. They thought that they were the only ones who were going to heaven. They didn't realize the Gentiles were going also. Even though the Lord showed it to them in the Old Testament. You remember when the Israel comes out of, the prom, out of Egypt to the Promised Land? Who leads them into the Promised Land? There's only two from that whole first generation that come in at 80 years of age. It's not Moses, it is not any of the other fathers that left Egypt. It's only two. Who are they? Joshua and Caleb. Did you realize Caleb is a Gentile? Caleb is a Kenzanite. He's a Gentile grafted into the tribe of Judah. Do you realize that Caleb's nephew, Othniel, is the first judge of Israel? When he was leading them for 350 years by judges? A Gentile. And then there's Jethro. That's the father-in-law of Moses. Zipporah's uh, father. And her brother, Hobab. Her whole family, they're Midianites. Midianites. The Midianites who joined with the Amalekites to attack Israel and were defeated by Gideon. There's Naaman. You remember him, the commander of the Syrian army who was healed of leprosy? Remember Ruth? Ruth. (laughs) Through whom David comes? She's a Moabite. A Moabite, a descendant of Abraham's nephew Lot as a result of incest. So the grace of God for Jew and Gentile Is clear, but they didn't see it. They didn't see it. They didn't see how how the church was gonna be made up of people who were both Jew and Gentile, one in Christ of equal footing. It just wasn't clear to them. That's why it was a mysterion, a mystery, for ages, for generations. It was always the purpose of the Lord, It was always in the truth of his word that was proclaimed. It just wasn't fully understood. Jews and Gentiles were still hostile to one another when Christ came. Jews referred to to Gentiles as dogs. I mean, this very idea of foreseeing them as being in union in one body, together, worshiping together, serving together, loving one another together, sharing with one another, they couldn't see that. It was a mystery. Number two, that's now revealed. From the coming of Christ incarnate to the death of Christ at Calvary, to the resurrection of Christ, and to the establishment of the body of Christ on earth, the church, the compassion of God in the gospel is now revealed to the entire creation. In Christ, the Lord has gathered to himself Jew and Gentile and has revealed what it means to be a child of God. One body. That's why in here we have no prejudice, do we? We have no hostilities. We have no bigotry. We have no hatred. We're to be a loving body. And that includes folks from every tongue, tribe and nation on earth. And who understands this? Number three, the saints. We've already seen that these are not folks who are um, dead. Defied by the church after death we saw that in a couple of weeks ago when we were first starting the book that's not who saints are in scripture saints are people who are alive covered by the blood of Christ consecrated for his purpose how can you be a saint? you're covered by Christ so therefore the Lord now sees you as though you have no sin you're a saint. Number four, it is to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Riches is the divine wealth made known through the glory of the incarnate arrival, the atoning death, and the bodily resurrection of Christ. And that divine act of compassion provides the wealth of God's grace. The wealth of God's grace to those who are born again. Number five, That's Christ in you. All of who God is has now been revealed in his Son who dwells within me. How is that possible? Didn't Christ say, I must go to the Father? And when I leave, I will send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and I will be with you to the end of the age. He dwells within us. The Old Testament predicted the coming of the Messiah, but this idea that he'd actually live within us? He would live within Jew and Gentile? That that wasn't fully understood. That's why it was a mystery. And number six, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is our assurance that one day we will behold him for eternity. That wasn't fully understood in the Old Testament either. They talked about when you died, you, you you were gathered to your father's in Sheol. They didn't see it. Now, if you're visiting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I do have a great appreciation for Christianity. I think it's one of the most but one of the best religions on earth. And look what good it has done. I mean, it's the basis for which we have Judeo-Christian principles, which is what makes this nation so desirable by people all over this globe. I think it's wonderful that it was the benevolence that comes through Christianity that we see the compassion of the gospel with the establishment of educational schools. Like Harvard. Harvard. Started by John Harvard's library to train Puritan pastors. And when they lost their way, they started Yale. And when they lost their way, they started Princeton. Took it from the log cabin college in Pennsylvania to, to New Jersey. When they lost their way, others have had to start. But it's the gospel within Christianity that is the basis for the compassion that also begun hospitals, also begun orphanages. When you look at the social reform that calls for equal treatment and opportunity, it comes from the basis found in God's word, in his gospel, in Christianity. And so maybe you've got a deep appreciation for Christianity. But if you're sitting there and you're thinking, yeah, but I I don't know that it's the only word from God. I mean, I I see value in, in, in other religions as well. And I believe that other religions also receive messages from the Lord. They get a word from the Lord also. If that's what you're thinking, I want you to know that the Bible totally disagrees with you. Christ isn't our hope for a glory. Our hope for glory in eternity, among others, He is our only hope in eternity. He's not just our hope; He is our only hope. The riches of divine glory are found in Christ alone. In Him is the hope and security of God's divine presence. So that leads us to verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone. What does that word warning mean? You know, the Gnostics uh, were teaching in that day, I mean, this Gnosticism was just beginning to, to uh, form, and um, they were saying that, that if you had, a, uh, you could have this higher degree of knowledge if you engaged in these mystical experiences. Paul says, you need to warn those people. You need to warn them. Uh, This word is sometimes translated admonish. It, It means to exert positive peer pressure on their logic. It means to counsel them. It means to correct them. Teaching them with all wisdom. That means systematically instilling God's word in them. You know, we first started Wellington. Just a small handful of people, and uh, we had Sunday school at 9:30, worship just at 10:30, and I would teach uh, four courses a year at 9:30. What I did is I, I took each course and I put them in 13 weeks, and we began with the reliability of Scripture. You got to know: Do you believe this is God's word or not? And there is, there is objective proof that it is. So you need to know that. So that's why we would take 13 weeks to go through that. And so then if that is God's word, then what has he said? How has he unveiled his gospel? And so I would I took him in a course, 13 weeks, from Genesis to Revelation. And then after we... Uh, uh, said, well, what what has the Lord revealed about Himself? You know, I taught the Attributes of God course, and then what about the Foundations of Faith? So I taught a course on that. So we went through four courses in one year, 13 weeks, every 13 weeks, that was at 9.30. And then I would come back on Sunday night, and I would teach again, and then I started a Wednesday morning Bible study at Panera Bread at 6.30. And after I went through those type of courses, I said, let's just do a course in the Bible itself. And so I taught the book of Genesis, and I found out real quickly that there's too much material there to cover Genesis in 13 weeks. And so I went back and I just covered Genesis 1 through 11 in 13 weeks. And then I had a course on the book of Romans, which is a New Testament commentary on Genesis. And I kept doing that year after year after year for 10, 12, 15 years. Why? Why? All those who took those courses I did it that they might become mature in Christ. And when he says all wisdom here, that doesn't mean that we will know everything that is to be known. I mean, the scripture is very clear. There are some things that belong only to the Lord. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Deuteronomy 29:29. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. All wisdom does not mean that we'll ever be omniscient. Now, some people don't understand that. There are some, and they sometimes come here. They think they already know everything. And those are the most difficult people to teach anything. Because they think they've already got it all together. They already know more than anybody else knows. They've got all wisdom. That's not what all wisdom means. All wisdom has to do with humility that brings you under the authority of everything the Lord has revealed to us in his word. You humble yourself beneath it and he has given us everything we need to know in his word about how we ought to do our job. Everything we need to know about how we are to do our marriage. He's already given us everything we need to know about how we are to bring up our children. He has given us all wisdom in His Word as to how we are to to respond to Caesar, how we're to interact with our government, what type of citizen are we to be, when should we obey and when should we not obey. There's nothing in life that the Lord has kept from us in His Word that enables us to have all wisdom concerning everything that he has revealed to us. The only thing that will keep you from that is your own stiff neck. Everything we need to know is there. And so he says in verse 29, for, for this, for has, for this purpose, I ag menas from agonizomai, that's the word we, from which we get agonized. It's the word that that, that they use for an athlete who pushes himself to the utmost. I agonize with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Following the Babylonian captivity, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, destroys the temple, destroys Jerusalem, destroys the walls around Jerusalem. They're in captivity for 70 years. And then Zerubbabel rises up, comes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed. And when he did, there was lots of opposition. And the Lord sends a message to him through the prophet Zechariah. He has Zechariah to tell Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4.6 Not by your might, not by your power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So whether it's discipling your own family or teaching a classroom of three-year-olds, there are two Ps we must commit to. I put them in your outline, preparation and prayer. You can prepare all that you want to prepare, but if the Holy Spirit is not at work in you and through you, you are not going to accomplish what brings God glory. It's not going to happen. I don't care if it's just your kid that you're trying to reach with the gospel as you kneel beside his bed to read to him at night and to, to pray for him. You not only prepare, you pray. And listen, you do not pray. You do not pray, Lord, help me. Lord, help me because I have failed to properly prepare. No, I I don't get into the pulpit on Sunday and go, oh Lord, I I need your help now because I didn't have enough time to do it right this week. I didn't spend any time praying over this. I didn't spend any time studying this. I didn't spend any time rightly handling this. I didn't spend any time putting this together. So now I need you to bail me out. No. No, it's the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. So you prepare. You prepare. You prepare. The Lord does not reward slothfulness. So you agonizmai, you struggle to prepare. You prepare well. But don't you ever come to believe that you can do divine work by human means. You pray for the Holy Spirit to work in you and through you to do what you cannot do as a human being. And this is for all of us, every one of us. It's not just for me, it's for you too. There's a missionary in Africa. I don't remember her name. But I do remember what she said. She told about an African woman who was a Christian. She was in her 70s, blind, had lost the use of her legs. And so she had her friends to carry her and sit her outside a school for boys about the time they were to be dismissed each day. And as the bell rang to dismiss school, the boys all come flooding out and she would ask if any of them would be willing to help her. And she had different boys each time who would stop and say, what do you need? And she said, well, I'm blind. I'm legally blind. I can't see. Therefore, would you read this to me, please? And she handed them her Bible. It was in French. And as they read through the gospel of John, they'd come to John 3.16, and she'd stop them, and she'd say, now, do you know what that means? They said, no, we have no idea. And so then she would use that to explain then the gospel to them. She did this day after day after day. Over a period of years, she had 24 young men who became pastors. If a 70-year-old African woman who's blind and has no use of her legs can be faithful in ministry, can you? She understood who she was in Christ. She understood the gospel well enough to explain it to them like a five-year-old girl. She had a divine purpose for her life. She didn't just curl up in the bed over there and go, I can't see, I can't walk, I can't do anything, I'm just going to die. No, she had a purpose in life. And she was driven to fulfill that purpose. How did she do it? She prepared, she had a plan, and she prayed. What about you? Have you prepared? Do you have a plan? Do you pray? How are you being used for God's glory?